in the city, back of my neck getting dirt and gritty. Bend down, isn't it a pity? Doesn't seem to be a shadow in the city. All around, people looking half dead, walking on the sidewalk harder than a match. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 25 of the Stolen Signs podcast. I am Kendall Gilmet here with Harry Pavlidis from Baseball Prospectus. Hey, Harry. Hey, Kendall. Happy end of May. A whole new month, especially meteorological summer. Yay. Tomorrow or in two days. What's the difference? That It's just like stupid stuff where they, they say that they want their, for whatever reason, they want for meteor, meteor, meteorological summer is they start at the beginning of months. Like, so summer, spring, winter always starts like the first of the month june 1st so it's not the lunar cal- calendar no it's not which is like but like why do you call it meteorological like is that shorthand for lazy scientists who don't want to keep track of the actual equinox probably yeah. all right well happy um <laughs> happy oh, end of spring people end of spring yes the, the end of spring is coming to an end and uh summer we're summering uh today as we venture into summer uh, we're talking with R.J. Anderson from CBS Sports about uh, the opener. And uh, you recently wrote an article about how stats are going to handle, like stats websites are going to handle uh, the so-called opener phenomenon. So we talk with him about that a little bit. And then we also are going to be having on Anthony Reskin, who did, was a, an intern here at Baseball Prospectus. He developed the draft value calculator as his intern project and so we talked to him about that so the draft is next week so it is draft is always the first uh week of meteorological summer ah yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's how i know it so we'll talk with rj and anthony and then um i'll i'll check back in with harry after that um before we do that stuff, uh, follow us on Twitter at stolen underscore signs. Rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. So if you're listening to this because somebody sent a tweet or something like that that you followed the link to, awesome. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Twitter so you can stay up to date with all of our witty banter and Various things. There's no witty banter. Don't lie. No, there isn't. We basically um, just tell folks when cool stuff is happening, namely our episodes. That's right. And here's one now. (laughs) Subscribe. Yeah. Subscribe. (laughs) And um, we'll talk with RJ and Anthony after this. So stick around. This episode of Stolen Signs is brought to you by Fielder's Choice Goods, featuring beautiful hand-cut wallets made from vintage game-worn baseball gloves. Get an exclusive offer of 10% off their Classics line just in time for Father's Day when you go to fcgoods.com slash stolen signs. That's fcgoods.com slash stolen signs. We are here with RJ Anderson of cbssports.com. Thanks for coming on, RJ. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. So you recently wrote an article about Sergio Romo and the so-called opener the surge opener. The surge opener. Surge opener. I've been trying to come up with like a a good term. Not sure that's like, it yet. No, I'm <laughs> why I said I was trying. I didn't say I had yet. So Yeah. But, uh so basically I just wanted to know what stat websites like uh BP and baseball reference would do of Romo and other openers because when you think about it, you know, you go to 
say, baseball reference leaderboards and you sort by some of a team's statistics, you have the Rays at the bottom of the league when it comes to stuff like pitches per start, innings per start, and so on and so forth. And that has to do with Romo skewing the stats because, you know, he's made four starts, but two of them have lasted less than an inning and the other two have lasted a combined two and a third of an inning. So I just wanted to get a feel for how everyone was going to basically you know, incorporate those numbers, whether there was going to be some kind of adjustment or if there were plans to introduce some new measure or countermeasure so you didn't see the raised numbers get completely tanked or you know, other teams if they were to adopt the same strategy. Well, let's back up maybe just for a second. So this strategy has only been used by the Rays, and you know, there have definitely been some pundits who have you know, said that this is a, a good thing or this is at least interesting. Um, or that's a significant uh, revolutionary right. concept. Yeah. Do you, RJ, do you think that this is something that's going to stick around or is this kind of an anomaly and um, just going to probably go by the wayside because Romo has gotten shelled the last two starts? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. And I think it'll probably stick around, at least for the season. You know, the Rays were already experimenting with stuff like this a few years ago. You know, you go back and look at Steve Geltz. He made, I think, a start or two years and years ago. And, you know, that didn't really work out either. They scrapped the plans. They went back to the conventional style of having five starting pitchers. And with this, you know, with this team, I think they're going to continue to try this because the stakes are pretty low. They have injuries. They have, you know, a bunch of guys they can option up and down and, you know, so on and so forth. Now, that's not to say I am 100% on board of this being a great strategy. And it's also not to say that I think it's revolutionary. I think the strategy has some interesting benefits to it in terms of creating advantageous matchups. But I think the effect is probably overstated. And I think the ability to create those matchups is also probably overstated. And I do have my concerns about it, you know, how this is going to affect the starters' preparation because we all hear you know over the years when it came to you know using a closer by committee or what have you that pitchers love having these designated roles they love having their routines and you know you're messing with starting pitchers who usually don't have their routines messed with you're also perhaps introducing some variables that we haven't thought about like for instance you know say Sergio Romo does leave after an out or two then you're introducing Matt Andres or Anthony Band or whomever into a situation where they're coming into a game of a runner or runners on base. So that's a whole new thing. And, you know, I don't think we can ignore the cost suppression aspect here. You know, Zach Cozart had some pretty good points. And after the winner we just experienced, I don't think you can just call him paranoid. I don't think you can say he's being, you know, myopic or excuse me, not myopic, neurotic or anything like that. So I think when you take all that together, my guess is it's probably like a marginal gain. And I don't know if it's worth the hassle because of that. It does seem like a major hassle, and it also, to me, feels like a marginal. If it is a marginal gain, and it's that, those are generally only helpful um, when you're near the asymptote on the winning curve. <laughs> you know, it's like you need to eat chunks of success if you're a struggling team, and just shaving off a little bit here and there may get you from 72 wins to 75 wins at the end of the year. Uh, it's a lot of effort. And I, I, I wonder how it impacts development of the young pitchers who are expected to have a routine and all these things. And I, I think that blows. I think that's one of the biggest things about it is that the psychological and player preparation aspect of it. I think that just it's nuts to me because I think that's such a critical part of these 
of success, especially with starting pitchers. It hasn't always been that way through levers. It's become more that way, as you mentioned, in recent years, or ten, past 10, 15 years, LaRusso years. But with starting pitchers, I mean, even the notion of piggybacking guys saying you're going to sit for the first four innings or so, we don't know exactly how long that's going to take. You're not going to be able to be out in the field to do your long tossing and stuff like that. We're going to figure out some other way to get you timed up. I mean, to do that in the big leagues with guys who have experienced, um, for the most part at that point, nothing but a normal starters routine seems risky. Yeah, and I would also point out you have to construct your roster differently if you're going to approach uh, your pitching staff this way because all it takes is, you know, one or two of these games where the opener doesn't do anything and then the guy who comes in after, you know, call him the continuer or the bridge or whatever. Well, if he gets roughed off, all of a sudden you need to go to the minors and bring up some new guys. And, you know, earlier in the year, the Rays were also doing the bullpen games where they were asking guys like Andrew Kittredge to go two or three innings. Well, if you think about it, you cannot build a bullpen where you have a bunch of guys who cannot be optioned, which basically takes you out of the free agent market for relievers. And you could say, well, that's saving you money. That's the intent and all. But think about it. You have to have a 40-man roster spot available for these guys. So you're really not worrying about quality of pitcher so much as quantity of pitcher. And, you know, to your point about development, it's really weird to me that they went out there and acquired Anthony Banda in a trade for Steven Souza Jr. And basically everyone said, you know what, Banda could be a number four starter. That's a fairly valuable asset when it's, you know, cost controlled. And that's the kind of trade you would expect the team like the Rays to make where they can then slot in Banda when they get an injury, underperformance, what have you, and he can be fine. Well, now they're using him in this weird role. And you do wonder what that's going to do for his development. And you do wonder what that does for his trade value or what have you. So there are a lot of variables and a lot of potential consequences here that I don't think even the Rays have really thought out or have an answer for. And I, for those reasons, I just don't think this is going to be a sustainable long-term thing, even if in the short term it's kind of interesting. And certainly it has everyone, including us, talking about it. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of fun. I mean, the whole, like, what does this mean? Like, thought experiment about it. But... You know, in terms of, you know, what you asked me about for your own article was, you know, are you going to do anything? And for the, my, and I think you just kind of answered why we're, we're really not. It's because this probably isn't going to last. And there's also things like bullpen games already. There's doubleheaders. You know, in the old days, there were a lot more doubleheaders and, and things like that. Relief pitchers were used differently. Um, closers pitched longer. There's all sorts of changes now pitchers have been used. And in September, uh, there's always a lot of really strange games where managers are going match up like crazy in the later innings when there's you know, when they're playing legitimate games that are meaningful to the final outcome of the season. And then on the flip side of that, you know, so you're using like tons of relievers in very short spurts. And then on the flip side of that, you have teams that are not in it and they're gonna use pitchers who are um, just filling time. Or, or, you know, there's all sorts of weird things that happen. And I don't think it makes a big difference on the stats. Like in terms of uh, like leaderboards and how many innings of the guys starters pitch, it's, I think it's good to just leave it because it is what it is. But in terms of where it may have an impact is, and I don't like, I don't think it will, is where in our models we distinguish a role as a factor in we don't necessarily, you know, it's game by game, but you don't want to necessarily have it wrong like that. So there may be some place deep where we recode something. But at this point, 
seems transient. And, uh, you know, Sergio Romo pitched the ninth inning the last time I saw, which I thought was weird using your starting pitcher in the ninth. (laughs) (laughs) That's taking bullpenning to the extreme. Yeah, that was really creative. (laughs) (laughs) But I do agree that, you know, patience is probably – the way to approach this, you know, see what shakes out. And who knows, you know, by the time the trade deadline rolls around, maybe they've scrapped this. Maybe Romo's not even on their team anymore. Maybe he's uh, <laughs> he's probably not going to be starting for another team, but he might be relieving for another team. So who knows? But I think the leaderboard aspect is probably the most curious thing about this because it would be something to look at, you know, this season. It, say Sergio Romo gets, you know, 20 more starts or whatever. And at the end of the year, he's leading the Rays in starts because right now he's already third among healthy Rays behind Archer and Snell. It's totally conceivable that Archer <laughs> is traded at the deadline. And, you know, say Snell goes on the DL, it's possible we look back on this year and career reliever Sergio Romo leads the Tampa Bay Rays in starts. And that's just kind of mind-blowing to me. That's a great – to me, though, that's like a great baseball statistical anomaly that's fun to have in the history books. And it's a story that, you know, will be interesting for people will come across it in 50 years and, and go, wait a second, this is really weird. And there's a story to be found in it. So it's what happened, you know. It is it is how the player was used. I don't – it's until it becomes like a standard thing in baseball, I don't – I don't think it'd be appropriate to change how stats are presented in terms of game who started and what that, you know, it's like, it is what it is from what happened in the record books. He was the starting pitcher that day, technically. (laughs) So, but you know, and as with most baseball stats, if you eventually have to look behind the, the box score and, you know, figure out what was really going on. But I don't think it's, you know, it, it's, uh, you have to be, what's going to happen though is going to be, you know, you have to kind of manually do it. That, you know, you can't say, well, we're just going to programmatically look at any guy who came in and pitched in the first or second inning and pitched more than three innings and call him this. Cause that could just have been a regular wrong, long relief day because your normal starter got bombed. You're not going to call that normal starter an opener just because he got bombed that day. So it's really basically some, human oriented this was an exception this was an exception so it's it would be a weird thing yeah and just number one i'm ashamed that you didn't plug our old site beyond the box score when you said behind the box i kind of just did that was kind of a subliminal reminder (laughs) and number two uh, i agree with you that you know you can certainly do this by hand manually and all but we're kind of spoiled and we're kind of lazy nowadays i mean I tell people about this all the time, especially the you know the newer writers who weren't necessarily around. But there was a time where we had to build our own pitch FX spreadsheets and our own graphs and all. And you obviously know this as well I as still anyone. Do. <laughs> see, I, see, I'm completely spoiled, and I I could still we, do we it if I had. Them, to. I build them, so we build we build the data, so you don't have to. Exactly. Um, we thank you for that because my charts were always ugly. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah, it's like there's this notion that we should be all this. You could do a database query and say basically what I just described, like give me the games where the pitchers did this, this, and that, and call that something. But it really needs to have a second aspect to it, which is was this player primary, primarily a relief pitcher that they never pitch over an inning? So you kind of have to do it. You can't. So the first time it happens, you're like, whoa, we don't know. 
like it's a new pitcher, you know, who just came from the minors. Maybe he's not going to be used in the same role, and he's being changed. And he got, you know, so you, so doing it automatically is always going to be. There's always going to be a hole in it. I just don't. Th- I just this type of thing where it's like, ah, oh, this is an unusual role, it, because the the actual circumstances of it. The guy comes in, pitches a little while. Someone comes in, pitches a few more innings. That actually can just happen in the normal course of playing baseball. Yeah. So I don't think you. So yeah, unfortunately, someone's gonna have to keep track of it. So yeah, you almost have to. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. So I think with Sergio Romo, it's easy. We just know. Okay. Anything where Sergio came in the first inning, market the special thing, and the starting pitcher, you know, just change it to be the guy who came in after. Yeah. For some, you just put a little patch on stuff at some point if you need it in a data process. But for the most part, just leave it alone. Let them be weird. <laughs> I yeah, wonder I, if it's funny is like they may not I I would wonder if they're gonna even do it again. Like it's quite possible that we're talking about this after it's already over. Right. No, they're using Ryan Stanek in that role tomorrow on Thursday for oh, okay. uh, if you're listening after the fact. So yeah, so they're gonna continue it for now. Uh who knows how long it'll last. I think we're all in agreement there are certainly some downsides to this that may, you know, uh, reveal themselves in the coming days, the coming weeks. And you know, I also feel like there's just a lot of cascading effects in general that are not being captured, not being thought about. But I also am cognizant of not sounding like, you know, an old guy who's against new ideas, against new strategies or whatever. And I've tried to remind myself, like, hey, you know, take a couple of minutes, think about this deeper. I, you know, I think about this stuff. Uh, you know, when they talked about the bullpen thing, I mean, the bullpen gaze entering the season. I mean, I talked to as many people as I could about it, trying to find, you know, the upside, trying to find the thought process and whatnot. And in the end, I still was against it. And uh, I just try to make sure it's not because it's a new idea. It's not because it's something different than what I grew up on, what I've come to appreciate about baseball or what have you. And I think as long as we, you know, stay honest and stay committed to that thought, you know, thinking it through to that process and all, then, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's just the way to be. Don't just I mean, dismiss I, it out I, of hand. Yeah, I mean, my my suspicion is that there's a very um, nuanced look at why you would do this and when. So presumably you have some type of matchup prediction, you know, estimate for your, your pitchers and opposing hitters. And you would then say, okay, you know, we also know that, uh, so, you know, just as a rule of thumb, baseball tends to score runs in the first inning. Some combination of like being the better hitters coming up at the top of the order, pitchers not being in their rhythm, whatever it may be. But, you know, first inning's a scoring inning. Uh, so you may want to say, okay, how can we stop that from happening? Do we change when our pitchers warm up? You, know, you may actually start this from a, well, we should protect our pitchers' routines. You know, not change them, but just have someone else pitch that first inning so they come in. But then you have to ask yourself, what's the typical leverage in a game like, you know, first inning of a game? Which pitcher is the best pitch? You know, do I want to use my best reliever, my second, my third best? Because I'm then losing it. What are the odds I'm going to need this guy for another similar or higher leverage situation later? So I I would suspect that they very, you know, I would hope that they really figured it out. Like it, it's, a, it's a good matchup to avoid for our starter. And it's just a generally decent thing. Like, you know, it may just be good to have a guy who's just used to coming out, throwing an inning, deal at the top of the order, and he'll, he'll be ready to go. And we'll kind of neutralize some of that early game offense. And what's the cost later for potential loss of a, of a good reliever in a high leverage situation? So it, it, if you're just doing it as like a way to avoid bad starters going, like let's just skip that inning and hope. 
like then then I'm like this is then it's this is a, be a train wreck if they're being nuanced about it, it, may, it maybe it will work <laughs> is there some sort of um, like times through the order benefit that you might see because you would own like a like a, the bridge or the continuer or whatever it's called the person who comes in who's actually pitching uh, more innings if they're going to not see the first part of the lineup the first time and so they'll be able to kind of turn that lineup over again down the line so they can kind of go further into the game. I don't know if that um, might have played into the the thinking at all, but that's something that occurred to me. Yeah, I mean, I have seen that proposed, and it makes some sense to me. At the same time, you know, you're kind of planning on your reliever getting the first three guys or first uh, four guys out, and I suppose I would say that, you know, you – typically feel the same way about your starter, right? I, you know, hope, just to use right? the angels, just to use the angels as an example, you know, they were kind of identified not only by the Rays, but also by Mike Petriella and I think others as a team to do this against. And when you looked at the angels numbers against right-handed pitching, they were actually the third best offensive team in baseball. And the guys who were the best hitters against righties are the guys who bat near the top of their lineup. So again, you know, you can try to plan this out and, you know, try to take advantage of those marginal things. And I do, you know, again, I concede that the third time through the order is a good point to make that, you know, you want your starter to be able to face the bottom chunk of that lineup one extra time as opposed to the top of the lineup. But I don't know. I still think it's just a marginal thing. And, I, you know, I was thinking about this point, and I thought about this point before when Harry was talking about, you know, bringing in that reliever right away and, you know, what's the cost of losing him in a high leverage situation. And again, with the Angels example, you know, would you rather have Sergio Romo facing, you know, Justin Upton or Mike Trout or whomever in the first inning when it's 0-0? Or would you rather him face those same batters in the 6th, 7th, or 8th inning when you might be protecting a one-run lead or when there might be a runner or two on base? And I don't know the answer because, again, this is a very complicated calculus, but there is so much to consider. And I think that the third time through the order penalty and who it comes against is one of those things to consider. And I just don't know what the final you know, conclusion is, but there's just a ton to consider here. And I assume that the Rays have done most of this map and have figured it out for themselves and think that it's worth it. But for me, you know, I'm not as skilled with the numbers, but just thinking it through, I'm like, you know, I just don't know if there's a huge advantage here. I can accept that there's a marginal one and maybe I'm wrong, but I guess I would leave it up to guys like y'all who are, you know, really smart here and uh, really capable of doing this and thinking outside the box. And I hope y'all, I hope y'all get an answer sooner than later, whether it supports my assertion or not. Well, we don't know. They may never give us a chance. As Russell Carlton frequently complains that no major league team has, has allowed him to um, randomly assign players to the roster. Uh, so <laughs> until, until such a time, we really just, we're, we're grasping at straws. There's nothing wrong with grasping at straws, though. No, I mean, you know, sometimes learn things. Sometimes they're attached to drinks. Yeah, but this is one I think we're going to wonder about. And I, it'd be, we'll see if they keep going, try different guys. If another team starts doing it, we'll have to really take another look at it. But, for now, it's kind of like, okay, kind of, I'm kind of side-eyeing it. Like, all right, well, <laughs> guys can do that. We'll just, we'll, 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 we'll let you know if we're worried. Right now, not yet. Yeah, I think that'll be interesting is if somebody else, some other team is like, yeah, let's give that a try. And then trying to understand the calculus that they've done, 
you know, yes, and, then you have, yeah, and it's like, oh, wait, you know, is They're it against the same people. team yeah. or is it, you know, th- those kind of questions? I would say if what team were going to do this, uh, it would seem like the Mets would be a good candidate. You know, they've suffered through some starting pitching injuries and in their performance. They've already talked about doing a bullpen game as part of a day night doubleheader, and obviously, you know. As Harry mentioned earlier, doubleheaders are a different beast. We've seen bullpen games before, but you look at their bullpen, you have some guys who have histories, uh, recent histories of being a starting pitcher. So maybe they trot Seth Lugo out there for a time through the order and Robert Gazelman or whomever. So if another team is going to do it, you would think it would be perhaps the Mets or one of these ever non-contenders who have you know nothing else to lose. I mean, maybe the Royals or the Reds or... You can throw, you know, you can list all those teams. I don't know which of them is the most likely to do it, but I think it's something that you're going to see considered. And frankly, you know, during the offseason, the Oakland A's would have had a good case for trying something like this. They acquired Pagan, they signed Petit, they didn't really have a clear four or five good or above average starters. And, you know, maybe they'd still decide to do something like this. But I do think another team will try it. And it wouldn't surprise me if they're actually more successful than the Rays are because of the talent level or perhaps because they don't just kind of do it uh, by the seat of their pants. You know, they actually go out there and acquire uh, some talent to really fill in the gaps. So I don't think it's going to be dead even if the Rays throw their hands up. But I also don't know if it's going to have a long shelf life regardless. Yeah, I don't know yet if it's an optimization or desperation. That's... That's the Rays way. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I don't know if it's optimization or desperation. I don't know which of the two it truly is. So well, time, time. It's one of those unfortunate things where we're just going to have to find out. <laughs> um, which I hate saying. Time will tell, but that's kind of where we're stuck. So. And if I can quote the philosopher Justin Bieber, "Heaven is a heartbreak away," and that's basically where the Rays find themselves. You know, they're trying to disrupt or whatever and at the same time you know they're a slither away from being uh, a losing team with not much going for them so desperation innovation wherever you want to call it that's what they're that's <laughs> what they're doing well thank you for joining us rj and also you are a co-host of uh, another podcast here on baseball prospectus the dfa podcast with brian grossnick so check rj out on that we talk about far less interesting topics like, you know, third catchers, extra outfielders, and all that good stuff. And we also make a bunch of bad, bad jokes, including a lot more Justin Bieber references than I think you guys uh, to, you know, you guys offer. So if that's your thing, uh, again, thank you all for having me. This was fun. Good. Thanks for coming on. This episode of Stolen Signs is brought to you by Fielder's Choice Goods. Wallets, card cases, and money clips made from repurposed vintage baseball gloves. Each product is one of a kind, bearing the marks of the piece of baseball history from which it's made. For a limited time, get an exclusive Father's Day offer of 10% off the entire Fielder's Choice Classics line when you go to fcgoods.com slash stolensigns. That's fcgoods.com slash stolen signs fielder's choice goods the legacy is in the leather Let me love you. we are here with anthony reskin who is just graduating from the intern program here at baseball prospectus stats and uh anthony thanks for coming on not a problem 
So you tell us a little bit about what you did um, and uh, then we can maybe talk through it. Yeah, so uh, we wanted to take some existing research uh, that was developed by Victor Wang back in uh, about 2009 and essentially update it. Um, it was pretty ripe for updates given you know several rule changes and, and just an influx of a bunch of new data. Um, so we wanted to update it and then eventually evolved into let's make it interactive too. Um, so we came to the point of, of developing this draft value calculator, which, which pushes out um, a lot of really interesting uh, numbers and uh, around the draft and, and, and gives you an idea of essentially what each draft pick is supposedly worth. So this is the notion of the, um, the, the years of control pre-arb and the return on investment of draft picks. So there's, you're looking at kind of it kind of bringing together the CBA rules and historical data on performance. Is that a fair way of saying? Yeah, that's, 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 that's pretty much, I think the, the best way to put it. Um, and a lot of it is like hacking through, you know, different deficiencies in, in, in available data. Like, you know, we don't have, major league service time data from beyond 2004. So we did our best to kind of, you know, find a good shorthand solution to that. Um, and then, you know, put off developing more advanced solutions, uh, for another iteration of this, you know? Um, but yeah, I think that's the best kind of way to put it. And so the, the result of this is, uh, like an interactive tool, Maybe tell me, like, what can I do? If I go to the interactive tool, what do I do and what can I learn from it? Yeah, so essentially you could basically tear this whole thing down and and use whatever kind of inputs you want for mostly every bit of the calculation. So the only thing that you really can't play around with is the historical performance data because we've cultivated that. Um, and set that aside uh, in the bins. But, you know, the stuff that uh, augments that is fully available for you to play around with. So say, you know, the super 2% percentage, uh, you think it should go up to 30%, and you want to see how that would affect surplus values, nothing else changing, um, you could you could do that. Or if you think the value of a win uh, calculations, which we relied on Matt Swartz's article on Fangraph's uh, at the end of last year, um, if you think that's incorrect, uh, whether you have your own number or you're just shooting from the hip, uh, they're probably both equally good. Um, <laughs> uh, you could do that. Um, and so then, you're basically you know, taking like, every aspect of this is a lot of different baseball research going in here. I mean, you've, we've knocked off like like the value of a win, which is a whole massive area of research and complexity. And sometimes controversy. So not everybody agrees on how that's derived, which makes sense that it's configurable. But you're using the, so. But when you come to the tool, it's already set up with default. Yeah, we want to so, give you the best starting options, and essentially, if you have changes you'd like to make, feel free. So, so, the, so the options are. What are the options basically? What are the inputs? Like when you come to the when you when you when you hit the tool, like what's on there and. And does that reflect an analytical finding, or does it reflect a CBA rule? So, 
Yeah, so we have uh, the value of a win, which is obviously analytical. Um, we have a link to Matt Swartz's article in the help box if you want to dig deeper into that. Um, and then there's also a bunch more research out there, like Louis Paulus did, um, you know, a pretty significant piece for Beyond the Box score a few years back. And, you know, there's there's more than enough out there. Um, then you have the Super 2 percentage, which is um, a CBA piece. Um that recently went up in the in the most recent CBA. And in case um, listeners aren't up to speed on that part of the contract language, what is what is a super two percentage, and what does it mean, and how does it impact the value of a draft pick? Yeah, so essentially, um, it comes into play with uh, player service time. So um, there are essentially a group of players past a certain bound of the percentage of players who have crossed two major league year. Uh, two years of service time uh, in a given year. Um, so it would be like the top 22% of those players would essentially go then go into arbitration a year early, um, which massively impacts their earnings. Um, because, so instead you know, of three pre-arb seasons, you only get two in a fraction. Yes. That could um, be a lot of money. Yeah, that could be. I mean, Chris Bryant went from almost league minimum to $10 million. Right, because pre-arb, you don't have to do anything. Like, is there like a minimum raise or something? Like, it's like, if the league minimum is 500000 I don't, don't think there is an actual minimum raise. So it's just um, whatever the league minimum is, and that's it. it, it yeah. Because no, I remember the Astros, like, tend to piss people off. <laughs> like, they didn't give Correa, like, a big chunk of money. And people criticize the Angels when they didn't give Trout a big chunk of money pre-arb. Yeah, but. and that actually influenced <laughs> our, our kind of decision-making uh, further down in the tool. Uh, with We essentially played out the, the salaries for year one, year two, and then year three salary for non, non-Super non 2 players. We essentially said, you know, if a team doesn't have to give it to them then, and we don't have an average number, then we should just leave that at league minimum and essentially let that play out as it is because – you know, like you said, I mean, if if Mike Trout and Carlos Correa aren't getting them, then why are we essentially just giving the benefit of the doubt, saying that you know these guys are going to get raises, raises no matter what? Uh, there is the there is admittedly probably a better way to do that, and we could we could figure that out whether it's you know imputing you know some kind of average number or whatever. But you know, for it seems our like first a reasonable it, assumption to start at, though. Yeah. Yeah. So I think just, so you're just going to get the minimum, you know, that's it. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. not like, and obviously it's an input, so you could change it. You yeah. know, that's the, that's the beauty. <laughs> um, yeah. And then in the sandwich in between this salary. So, hold, hold, sorry, so it's made this realize like if so, all, so anybody who's like the CBA should be like this, they can, for, we can't do it on every possible thing you can imagine within the current set of levers. They can actually kind of experiment what the, what the CB, like proposed CBA changes would do to player evaluation. Yeah, and I think it would be really cool, especially for people who are like, you know, say say they think people the, the a popular opinion is that you know the players in the draft kind of got jobbed when the uh, uh, draft pool draft uh, draft dollar pool was was initiated. Slotting system. Um, yeah, there we go. Um, you could sort of play around with that and see, you know, what what might be the most optimal sort of set of um, rules for for these players. And so that's what, another thing you that's that you could 
either just leave as is or change. So, so you can change a super two percentage up or down to change the threshold, how many guys get pushed through. And you can also then go earlier in the kind of the timeline, change what the slot values were too. Um, actually not yet. Oh, okay, so you got to keep the slot values. Okay. You've got to keep the slot values, but you can have some, some ways to hack around that and see, you know, what might get you a more, we'll call it player share of the surplus and what might get you more of a team share of the surplus from that kind of angle um, by playing with the available inputs. Okay. So after the super two, then what's the next thing that you could hack and change? So we essentially have uh, the next one would be the the player number, which essentially avails you the number of uh, players, quote unquote, that would be available in the sample Um, because we took each individual season running up to, um, essentially, essentially every major league season up until present date. Uh, but we didn't want to cut out and penalize drafts that were more recent just because they had one or two major leaguers in them. Mm-hmm. We essentially wanted to take, say, hey, um, the average amount of time that these group of players take to the major leagues is X many years. So let's subtract that from the total amount of years. And then we have essentially our denominator for for all of our calculations. Um, so instead of saying, hey, you know, XYZ pitcher uh, throws 100 miles an hour and the Padres call them up this year, uh, we don't want to essentially penalize, you know, 79 other players um, and drive down the stop values because that one player made it through very quickly. Okay, so there's so this is kind of a, a smoothing process. Yeah, exactly. Handles that make sense? I think so. I think so. I'm, I'm looking at the tool, and we've got all of the inputs, and then we calculate the surplus value, and we get this table of results that returns um, overall, which is the overall draft pick, I'm mm-hmm. assuming, X salary, and then surplus. So... Can you explain what the X salary and what surplus, what those two values mean? Yeah, so the X salary is their like expected salary. Um, so that would be is that, is that predictive? <laughs> 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 Sorry. Sorry. Uh, we might have to trademark that soon here. No. Okay. Go okay. as you were saying. That's the expected salary. Uh, the expected salary essentially estimated uh, salary. <laughs> Uh, essentially, we're saying that the, this player should earn this salary based on the historical performance of this player. And if this player were, quote unquote, in a free market every single season of their career. Um, so they were earning the the quote unquote market value that they are they are supposedly deserved over their entire um, controlled period. And then what we do is we subtract uh their actual salary from the expected salary, and then you get your surplus value. And the actual salary is based on historical information, or it's based on like the salary and arbitration measurements from the left-hand side. Yeah, it's based on everything from the left-hand side, basically. Okay. Uh, we, we take we take all of that into account, and then we also take in uh, slot values into account. And so it's based on all those starting conditions, what the super two two cutoff is. And what the historical performance is, you figure out based on this set of rules with this assumptions about the player pool, 
this is how much this player will get paid. And then this is and this is what typically how they perform. Okay. So so you basically get, you know, and I remember like in early versions of this, you get weird things because like, you know, there's some, you know, for some reason, just randomly without real meaning, like certain like certain picks do better. Like, but so you kind of have to share that with the picks next to it in a way. And there's, again, a smoothing, I think, there. Um, but the idea is that you can take all these conditions just as they are, and you can just look at it as a snapshot and just be like, a, you know, that just could be a table of data describing, you know, under the current you know set of assumptions, but you can change it, you know, and based on whatever things you do want to change and you can see what that does. And it gives you a sense of where the value is in the draft. And then you can look right. and see like at if, if you're, it's the way I think of how people might use it is that they would look at, okay, well, we're thinking about drafting this. My favorite team is thinking about drafting this player at this position at this point in the draft. What's that going to cost them? What do players at that, you know, how they typically perform? And it kind of helps you judge, like, the quality of the draft that may be about to happen next week, for example, right. or ones that just or after it happened. What, what was this guy? What did, the, what did the team think this guy's worth? Or what is my team's draft pick worth this year? If it, if it was a tradable pick, like an international slot pick, I think you can trade it or something like that. Um, but the other thing to me, which is, like, the bigger, like, future idea for this is that people who play Dynasty Leagues might find – like even right now you could use this tool to design perhaps a system that you think is more equitable for your league or eventually use it to actually, you know, help you plan your own drafting strategy. Like yeah. input the players and different, you know, get, have different things than just the real world. So that's my, as I look at it and I just calculated the value, the default values, so I've got the expected salary of somebody who goes 1-1 one, one as uh, $121 million plus. And is that over there up until they reach free agency or is that their career? That's up until they reach free agency. Okay. So that's three pre-ARB and then three ARB years. Is that, that's how, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Six years uh, of control. And you, would, yeah. and you would expect, you know, 22% of number one overall picks to hit super two essentially okay uh, got it i guess that would be the rough way to say that but yeah so it's like 80 percent of one year. okay so and then the 83 percent surplus value or sorry 83 million almost 84 million in surplus value means that they're delivering that much value in their in terms of their performance more than they're yeah. getting paid is that yeah okay yeah so the typical one one under all the default conditions is an 80 million dollar surplus so let me try and say that another way that um it's really good for the team yeah okay <laughs> so yeah so they're going to deliver the team a lot more value so even though your one one is a very expensive signing right it's still good it's still on average, if you were to pick number one every year for 50 years, you'd be getting a lot of surplus value. Now, some guys don't work out. I mean, obviously, this is not, you know, but it's like, what's the, ex what's the expectation yeah. based on historical and the best estimate we might be able to have in the future? So if you, if you think, like, your team picked, like, a crappy guy 
like for signability reasons to save like $2 million, you could use this to demonstrate that they just blew like, okay, we're going to cut his war projection in half based on scouting reports or something rational. You could show that like, okay, yeah, they saved a million or $2 million on his bonus, but his performance is going to be pretty weak. Uh, because he's not going to get super two. That's the good news. But yeah. so you can show that they just took the eighty billion dollar surplus and slammed it down to a ten million dollar surplus. You know, so as a you know penny wise, pound foolish maneuver. Yeah. So that's another way to use the tool. It's like it's a, there's a lot of ways you can. It's like one hand, just like a table of numbers, but like when you start like by you know, start like toying around with it, that's why I, I keep thinking about dynasty leaders, like where like it, it's a lot more. Like people doing research or writing an article, like like it's great. I think way to think about the draft and what's going on. But I think I think eventually it's going to be like a really great way to like plan and budget your own stuff, like in a league. So I, I, I'm not too experienced in, in in the dynasty stuff. I am in a league with Anthony, uh, but uh, I, I'm, com- I'm, I'm coming for that second place in that division. By the way. <laughs> That's, this is a huge honor, and we're going to hold on to that as tightly as or was as much good luck and fortune. We can't even believe it sometimes. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there's definitely a I, I, I like am I, I that's where I think like this thing will eventually go because I think it's a research tool. It's great, and there's a lot of creative ways like to use it. But I think the most utility for people will probably be where it has some practical application to their you know picking their team, managing their team. But to me, it's really interesting to mess around with just the numbers and see like what happens if I do this? So this kind of just, you know. Yeah, it seems like it's a good way to start thought experiments about different strategies for you, for your favorite team or for the team that you work for or what have you. Um, but I think that the, the explanation it makes sense. This is uh, To me, it wasn't something that was just super apparent when I looked at it, but uh, hopefully this can be a, a good... Um, descriptor for folks if it's not apparent to them uh hopefully this will clarify some stuff it has for me for sure yeah and i think i think a good like maybe practical sort of example will maybe just take you know the the, the tigers this year i mean they have they have pick number one one and they're probably going to take casey mize from auburn um if if they say if they think that he's going to work out as a normal number one overall pick then that surplus value might you know help alleviate them their issues with uh, massive old guy contracts. Um, hey, hey, no ripping on Miggy. Is that, that's, that's this is totally on goal for. Aren't they still under? Aren't they still under the hook for uh, another another elderly fellow who used to be a catcher um, that shall go unnamed because I don't think he plays too much anymore. Uh, Victor Martinez, or did he come off the books? He's on the Phillies. He's somewhat weird. I forget. He's. So I don't know if he's on their books. Are they, but no, still the, the Tigers for, definitely have some money Prince too, right? No, right. I think that was a pretty clean trade with Kinsler. Oh, was it? Or was it Kinsler or? Yeah, it was Kinsler. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They so they still got one more year of Victor Martinez, so that's not bad. But still, um, that's another. That's one way to think about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's. The, Hey, don't be like excited about this fact you're going to get a quality player. It's going to be like, hey, we're not going to be bleeding cash as badly as before. <laughs> not quite as badly. We still won't be good. The but. packed gauze of the first pick. But yeah, that is a way to look at it. But you can also think, you know, if 
there's something if, if people want to give us suggestions or tell us we're crazy about it please you know yell at us on twitter um we want people to use this thing because it's only through people using it do, do they learn about it so the draft coming up you know yeah now's the time well, now's the time it's relevant draft is extremely exciting and i love it so i hope people jump into this because it is fun listening to a conference call in round 25 when some scout's son gets picked oh uh, yeah. yeah that's the the beauty of the draft is that it's uh, overproduced at the beginning and then underproduced after after like round three so it's <laughs> you know what I mean? it's like this is a little much just do the picking to Okay, this is a little low brow. Can we have a little more pomp? <laughs> so, I'm never pleased. But yeah, draft is when June five, June fourth, fourth and fifth, I think. Okay, yeah. So this will be out on Thursday, the thirty first. So yeah, you have a few days to uh, check it out before the draft, but also after, it will still be useful. And if the CBA changes, we'll have to update it. Uh, but yeah, well, congratulations on being an intern and doing a project and uh, collaborating. This was a collaborative one, Martine. Yeah. Mar- uh, yeah, Martino Martin Alonso worked on it with me really closely. Um, he did a lot of the R side of it, and I did a lot of the math and SQL side of it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was it was really fun, and we got to do some. I know this thing went through like eight to ten different iterations and and different concepts, and um, so it was really fun to get your my hands dirty and just kind of delve into you know something that hey you know i'd really like to draft so this was cool but also be just really interesting and i think there's a lot of potential to grow from this right which is why it was like a perfect like internship project for bp because it was something that was a learning and growing experience for the person doing it and provided something we think is useful and can be further even further developed and be even better but it's already of use to our readers and listeners so Thank you and congratulations. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> All right, well, thanks for coming on, Anthony. And uh, we'll link up the uh, value draft value calculator in the show notes. And um, yeah, look forward to, to hearing how people use it and uh, any feedback that folks have. So thanks, Anthony. Perfect, guys. Thanks for having me. Hello, anybody home? Welcome back. Thanks again to RJ Anderson and Anthony Reskin for coming on the show today. Um, we are going to talk a little bit about some other things that we've learned or come across over the past few weeks. Harry, yeah. we get like started. A consolidation of like this week I learned for like three weeks of material. <laughs> that sound about right? Yes. So I yeah, that's right. I think that our favorite. Let's start our favorite one. I'm declaring Kendrys Morales stealing bases to be our favorite. I'm cool with that. Yeah. So Kendrys Morales was a very, very good hitter, broke his leg terribly, like at a home plate celebration. And the fact that he's come back and been a contributing major leaguer is quite impressive considering the severity of his injury. Um, But one thing that did happen after that was he did not run anymore. Uh, But a few weeks ago, he stole a base. And it wasn't the back end of a double steal. Right, straight and, steal. 
Yeah, we were, we were falling over. Then he pitched a couple of days later too, so it's like this amazing Kendris Morales uh, Renaissance. Renaissance. Yeah, yeah. Look at that. So uh, th- this this was uh, in between when we uh, wanted to talk about this and when now we are. Uh, Mike Passador over at BP Toronto wrote about this, so we'll, we'll link that up. But he and he kind of did the same thing we did and looked back at historical data, like how how long between stolen bases can you go? Because he went, I think, nine years. So if you pull up this report, you get like old pitchers, backup catchers. You get all sorts of guys who don't play a lot. And, you know, don't get many at-bats. And he just like sticks out like a sore thumb. The, like, one of the only other players who like went you know, this long um, in Major League Baseball without stealing a base was Warren Cromartie. He went something like 1,100 games. But he was stealing bases with regularity for a very long career in Japan. So he 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 gets thrown the guy with the longest uh, number of so this we we did this by days between stolen bases mm-hmm. okay and then we have like an approximation of plate appearances just just a wrinkle in our data warehouse that it just we're too lazy to write a query that would go fast put it that way so we just kind of took like okay in those seasons that were this period over so it's not an exact number of PAs it might be a little high it might be a little low just to give you a sense but. You know, Morales went 3,133 days. He went from October 2nd, 2009 to May 1st, 2018 without stealing a base. That's 3,133 days. So the players who went longer were Henry Blanco, Dick Hall. I'm going in ascending order of days here. Matt Sinatro, Jim Cott. Rocky Nelson, Steve Carlton, Robin Roberts, Danny Darwin, Tim Laker, Pat Borders, Andres Blanco. There's like a position player. We'll get yeah. back to him. And the guy with the longest days between stolen. Now, Blanco was 4,185. Borders was 3,661. So there's, you know, 500 days between Borders and Morales. And then you jump another 500 days to Blanco and then a few, like 150 or 50 more days. So Nolan Ryan went from 1972 to 1984 without stealing a base. Um, what's interesting is Blanco only had 968 plate appearances in the big leagues. Between those two days? Between those things. He's yeah. in the minors quite a bit. So, so you look at it like from, okay, so there's like a dozen or whatever you know guys who went longer between stolen bases in the major leagues. But, you know, Cromartie, by the way, is 20. He, he's, on, he's down further. But what's interesting is how much they played in between. And it's not even close. I, I mean, it's crazy. Morales has over 4,000 plate appearances between stolen bases. No one next, has, like, yeah. his Blanco with, like, 2,000. Yeah, the next person on the list is, like, less than half. Yeah. That's bonkers. Yeah. And then he cut in half again to Roberts, Carlton, and Borders. Then Nelson's down there. But, like, guys like Sinatra. Like, so, Danny Darwin, 3,394 days, 246, roughly. You know, 200, 250 plate appearances. Nothing much. But for, over 40, almost 4,400 plate appearances, 4,000-something plate appearances for Morales between stolen bases. And on this list where we have guys going back to over 2,600 days in between, no one's even close. Uh, Wes Helms. 2,600 days between stolen bases, 2,300 plate appearances. So this is, you know, what Morales did was um, 
extremely unusual. Uh, so it, it's it's a wonderful thing. So mm-hmm. I think you know we should you know congratulate him on not only becoming a, a base stealing phenomenon but a pitcher all in the same week. Welcome back, Andrews from Morales. Yeah. He also I also I read a, a piece about him as well last week when we were talking about him, and there was something where like he was wearing glasses or he started wearing glasses or something like that. And so then apparently he was seeing the ball better. Um, uh, I would imagine that'd be one of the objectives. That'd be helpful. It could be a fashion. <laughs> yes. Like, do these look good or what? Yeah. Guys. Well, Guys. Wilson Contreras <laughs> also had some nice uh, sunglasses that um, the other day, quite stylish. And uh, Bryce Harper was messing around with like he wore like three different pairs of glasses in one game or something. I That's right. What that was about. It's the new uh, the new competitive edge. Being able to see. Yep, you heard it here, folks. All right, <laughs> <laughs> I have one. Their vision, their vision revolution is next. Oh yeah, there you go. So Same I have ball. I have something. So in our um, in our little show badge. We have um, a speed limit sign. And it, it says yeah. speed limit 105. And that was from Aroldis Chapman when he threw 105. But there is someone else who is a new addition to that club. And that's Jordan Hicks from the Cardinals who has thrown 105 a few times you might know better than I do Harry on like this. in one inning yeah I think yeah, he hit like, it a couple times like these numbers up when you get to that level it's like it was maybe a little uh, it's it, yeah but yeah he's up there I guess Joel Zamaya him and and Chapman would be the anybody else uh, not maybe. not that high that I've seen uh, yeah. Michael Kopik or Cope I'm not sure how to say his name but um, that that was not true though they claimed a 105 for him in the minor right. leagues that was that was not even close to being true yeah but he, he's the only one who I've heard is even in the neighborhood. I will just say but. that uh, there are a lot of guys you could throw under the minor leagues right now. It's not. It, it, it's shocking. That is. Shocking. There's a lot of hard. The Baseball America actually publishes a list, and there's a lot of guys you throw under. I can't give you mine, but they give you theirs. Um, people do throw hard now. It's. It's crazy. And there's a bunch of guys throwing 100 all around major leagues, 101, 102. But Hicks is insane. And he's yeah. throwing a two-cent fastball, too. So things run in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it just goes so. sideways sometimes. But, yeah, so he's uh, – That was cool. Then he said he saw his 103 on the board, and then he decided he wanted to throw harder, and he did. I mean, it's just, just insane. I just hope he doesn't get – I hope this is like a guy who doesn't get hurt. Right. You know what I mean? But – I don't know. 105 seems like the human limit. It seems to be. It seems to be. That's a good question. We should have a physiologist on. Cause I've, 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 there's, um, I think there's stuff in Jeff Passon's book about this, I think, yeah. in the arm, about that if you were to start generating more velocity or more arm speed, it would maybe not be. There's like a, there's a trade-off. There's like, there's like that. There's the, well, there's like something like, I forget. We'll have to look it up. But yeah, we'll talk about that next time maybe. But yeah, it's weird. Hicks throws hard. Hard. He doesn't strike people out. <laughs> maybe someday. I think he started. I think he just started getting into striking people out. It's a new thing he's trying out. 
So he's throwing 105. What else? So Tawny's throwing, uh, you know, close to 100, isn't he? Brandon Morrow came into a game through three pitches, 100 miles an hour. It was the entire day of work. Um, that was pretty funny. Yeah. Chapman's throwing a two-seam fastball also, um, 100, 203. So to me, this is the season of the, the 103-mile-an-hour two-seamer. That, that's like the thing that I started to see. Yeah, so typ- typically the faster pitch is a four-seam, right? Sure, yeah. So somebody throwing a two-seamer that hard, mm-hmm. uh, like you said, that's going to get um, arm side run. It, two-seamers typically tend get, to get some run or yeah. sink, yeah. Yeah, and so yeah, you can see some videos of Hicks where the ball does go, you know, run a lot more than he probably would want. Yeah, but he oh, has right. a crazy. He has a crazy. It's definitely running. Like, and it looks like. See, when I first started seeing the pitch and data, I was like, "That's this is you know a fastball," but then uh, Joe Schwartz and the Cardinals gifts guys they found good pictures of it being a two seamer, and then we found that he did indeed add a four seamer this year. He throws he does throw some four seamers in there, but predominantly he's a two seam guy, which is. <laughs> Yeah, like what? 103 miles an hour with movement. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to modern baseball. Yeah, right. Well, speaking of modern baseball, we there's been some discussion, much of it precipitated by some investigations that our colleague Jonathan Judge has some research that he's done, some work he's done about ex woba specifically. And um, for pitchers and for hitters looking into that and how that those X stats may not be as predictive as we had been led to believe or had been talked about or what it's one of the (laughs) it's tango himself from the beginning was, I think, wanted to call it estimated, not expected, because I think he realized that 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 this may happen. Yeah. Where a lot of people took it to be as something that's designed explicitly and preferentially to be used as a predictive measure. And it's really taken us down like a really weird path in how we describe what a metric is used for. So instead of getting caught up in like the nomenclature about it, Jonathan just looked at is it more or less predictive than the non X version of itself. And he found that over a season to season, it's not, yeah, it really like, there's just like this tiniest of gain and really doesn't give you anything. Some people have responded to show that it, over shorter periods, it's better. And my reaction to something that's better predictive or shorter versus longer, it's one of two things it might be overfitting or, an interesting way to explore the concept of the hot hand controlling for outcomes and results. You just want, you know, like they looked at fastball speed Yeah. for, for hitters. You can maybe look at something like this. So, so when you say overfitting, what, um, what does that mean? Overfitting is, is creating a model that attempts to remove error by making a predicted path through your data points that fits every point as closely as it can, as opposed to coming to the most likely path <clears throat> that is smoothed and kind of has residuals where some points just don't fit in the, in the path. Um, but if you're overfitting on a, in a model, you are trying to eliminate your error in your test, in your test sample or your training sample, but you're probably going to do really bad in out-of-sample testing. 
So if you say, okay, I'm going to very, very carefully create a model that explains all the variance in this set of data and all these data points in my spreadsheet, it may not work very well over time with other data sets. But if you make it a little more generalizable, not assuming that the error uh, and variance and location of every point is actually meaningful uh, to the model and just let the model have some error in it and allow some points to not fall <laughs> on, the, on the fitted curve, uh, you have something that probably have more utility in predicting data out of sample, whether that's future data or data that you kept out of the training set. So, Is that a, a like a design, um, like a model design kind of question where yeah. as, as you're thinking about it, you, you would want to, you know, I mean, you've talked about this before, but you, you ask the question and then you come up with the model and you see what the data tells you versus taking the data and... oh no you could you could no you could be you know following perfectly good okay ask the data and still not um tune your model correctly okay got it you know you you can just you sacrifice explaining what has happened to having any future explanatory power okay. uh, so the way you avoid this is to you know take only 80 percent of your data to train your model and then test it on the other 20 percent and constantly change what that eighty twenty is. Like so, just keep okay. you know, remix it ten thousand times. Yeah. So you know, and use you know, and just also have a philosophy about modeling and, and producing tools and, and using them and to guide decisions that is aware of you know the risks and dangers of overfitting. So it's it's a. Uh, so, so I look at, you know, XWaba and stuff like that. I'm like, I don't think it was designed to be predictive. I think it's designed to explain what kind of could have happened if, you know, in some neutral circumstances. But I think it got confused in how it's presented and how people started, like, looking at it. And I think, it, you know, there's a lot of confirmation bias because there's a lot of people who say, yeah, I've used it and it works for me. It's like, well, you know, did you on the compare that to just using did did you systemically go through a process where you were doing your lineups in daily fantasy with xwaba and with regular wava or you just you know it's like it's a lot of anecdotes about these things are useful for me so that's kind of what spurned the article it wasn't just like jonathan going this is a stat that we don't like and it's like no this is an interesting stat but i'm like are people using it as predictive and i googled it and i was like wow they are yeah like, I mean, people are really are, like, they're talking about how they're using it for betting. Right. And, you know, all sorts of stuff. And it's like, okay, okay. That's, this is so, it may actually have utility for these people. But what what we're kind of saying, you know, and I agree with Jonathan quite a bit on this, is that it's not a predictive stat in terms of having more power than it's it, the thing that's trying to replicate. It really doesn't. So, careful because people are going to think expected you know not everybody but a lot of people are doing it now what's very interesting is i've had people tell me i'm not using it as an expected sap but actually someone has said, actually used the terms i'm using it to infer the future that's some that's some semantic gymnastics there but, it, but i'm like that is predictive no like i i have like subtweeted a lot of people uh by saying like you guys are like lying to yourselves but what you are and aren't using as predictive 
So if you're saying, no, 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 I don't, I don't think it's a predictive stat, but when I'm setting up my lineup or making a trade or doing this or that, looking for gaps in performance, like, okay, so you are using it. And that's fine. Um, any measurement we take can be used as something to predict the future. So people say, well, if you're not going to use XWAB, what are you going to use? Like a Pakoda? You know, like uh, I want to make a projection. I'm going to use a projection system. You know, I'm not going to use a stat. That's not how that's that's not how it really works. So I think what people are doing are, are it's really weird. People are like, I don't use projections. I use these stats. It's like, well, what do you think projections are? You know, um, but what are they based on? You know, they're they're using stats. Everything. So anything, any metric, you know, should be. If it's useful in the in a practice of some profession or, or hobby, it, it might be useful that it has predictive power. But you're also when you're talking about a measurement, you're also talking about describing things. So there's this like descriptive versus predictive. It's kind of a, a, a false dichotomy and not really a healthy way to look at it. Like any measurement can be reliable or unreliable. It could also correlate well to future things. Or it may do a really good, and it might also do a really good job describing past things. Like any measurement can do. So, if a projection system is like we're not taking a stat, we're taking like all sorts of variables into consideration and coming up with deriving some numbers. We're not trying to use the same numbers to correlate to itself to predict what that is. That's not particularly interesting (laughs) and kind of kind of weird yeah i go back to like what sam miller said a couple episodes ago about doing something versus doing something responsibly like applying a statistic versus applying it responsibly like that that uh stuck out to me and and i think that it's you know potentially relevant in this case Mm -hmm. as well and i think if people like xwaba and that that they may want to just use actual exit velocity to launch angle information, look at that, understand the underlying parts of it and realize that that's blended in with their walk and strikeout rates as well. So it's both a contact stat, but also another, it's kind of a weird thing. It's kind of a, I don't know if I would have combined those things if I was designing something. I don't know if I would put those all together or not. I don't know. I don't think so. But uh, so I think if you really like that, like what that number gives you, what you're saying is I really like what contact stats give me. So look at context stats and then understand what that XWABA means in the context of context stats plus the pitcher's actual walk and strikeout rates. Yeah, do that. Do that. Do do it. Um, And another thing for you to do is to follow us on Twitter, stolen underscore signs. Rate, review, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast fix. And... um, Thanks for, again, to RJ and Anthony for coming on. Another one in the books, Harry. Goodbye, baseball!